That's all right. Well, go ahead and grab a seat. Well done. Connecting is happening. I love it. You might want to grab your notes out of your handout. My name's Mike. I'm one of the pastors on the team. It's great to be with you, Overlake. I absolutely love you. As you're grabbing your notes, I do just want to affirm you for a moment. Overlake, you are such a great church. I absolutely love being on the spiritual journey with you. It's an incredible honor to be in this thing with you. Uh, you might uh, remember last week we called the church family to a vote updating our bylaws. Uh, those things, those bylaws passed. Uh, we needed about 75%. We needed 75% approval rate. We passed them with 97% approval rate. Yeah, that kind of unity is so beautiful, Overlake. I, I absolutely love you. And we love uh, everyone who voted, including those uh, no votes that we got. So we're meeting with them, connecting with them, honestly, because we honor and, and we want to be on the journey with everyone uh, that God has brought uh, to Overlake. So thank you for that. Thank you for being unified. And then, as Pastor Pat just mentioned, we are announcing this new kind of a massive change of a paradigm for our whole summer uh, season. And, and the response has been great. Great. So we're very, very excited about that. I've been using language that Pastor Pat has been using. He's talking about this idea of leaning in this summer. And, uh, and so I just want to reiterate, I want to say, man, please lean in, right? Just absolutely pass your center of gravity on this idea of connecting and, and being a part of all the different ways that we have to connect here at Overlay. And if you missed last week's announcement, I, I just want to reiterate, beginning on June 25th, we are going after a one-service Sunday structure that starts at 10 a.m., 10 a.m. 11 o'clock, I need you to hear this, 10 a.m., okay? And uh, on the back of your handout, you'll see it goes for 10 weeks. So 10 weeks at 10 a.m., we're very excited about that. And, um, and then the idea is that all of us would serve two of those Sundays and, and that way make sure that everybody gets a chance to participate in worship together. About 300 of you already responded by jumping in last weekend and uh, very, very excited. I want to affirm you and then uh, really challenge everybody to, to be in this thing together and jump in and serve the summer. So with every change that, that is made, regardless of how positive, there is always some pain involved. And so it is good just to reiterate why is it, what are the reasons behind this? And the first and foremost is this is how we are seeking to serve our church family well. And we know that we're coming off the dreariest, wettest, darkest, coldest winter in Seattle history. All of us are kind of wrestling with cabin fever. Um, we understand that if it was just same old, same old at church, that uh, there many people would just choose, you know what, if the weather's nice, I'm checking out, I'll see you in the fall kind of a thing. And we get that as a staff. Like, we understand that. We know this desire to get a year's worth of sunshine, you know, in, in, in these 19 days we have. So... So, so we understand that. So we're kind of new and improved. We want to make this as powerful as possible. Again, the emphasis is connection. We're, we're kind of doubling down on this idea of how can we orchestrate everything over the course of our summer to, to meet this value, to facilitate this. Uh, by the way, since we start an hour earlier at 11, that means we end an hour earlier. So you have a longer time to be outside with your family, with your friends, having fun. Uh, one service together is going to build excitement, momentum, and of course, connection. To facilitate connection even in this room, we're going to have section leaders at each of the little seating sections that we're in right now. 
And that will be to foster connection, greater connection with those that we sit around, those that we worship together with. The reason why this is important, friends, is because so many of us in sort of the church-going culture, I don't know if this is a Northwest thing, if this is just church culture in general, but so many of us, when we come to church, we kind of operate with one another like Ron Swanson in Parks at Rec, okay? Here's a quote from him. He says, I once worked with a guy for three years and never learned his name. Best friend I ever had. We still never talk sometimes. And so that's how some of us, we interact with those around us, right? We, we don't care about learning names. We don't care about developing friendships. We don't care to really invest in the spiritual family that God has brought to us. So we've got our work cut out for us to challenge that mentality this summer. Pastor Pat's heading up multiple ways that this can happen off-site through hosting um, block parties. We want to make sure that we host hundreds of block parties in our parishes this summer. And then this idea of partying at the park, OCC at the park. And, and so we're looking for park hosts for that. And then part of the connection is going to happen within the church. We talked about serving two Sundays in our Kidtown ministry. We're looking for section hosts as well, serving here. Two Sundays we'll have family service where the whole church family will be together in here. And then immediately after, we'll go out and we'll have lunch together. It's either BYO picnic or we'll have some food trucks and, and some ways that we can do that together. And again, reiterating, it's 10 weeks only at 10 a.m., and that means it starts on June 25th, and it ends on Labor Day. So on Labor Day, we'll go back to our two services, 9.20 and 11 a.m., and uh, I, I think that's enough of the announcement. Thank you, Overlake. I love you. So good. Last week, we talked a little bit about the first century church. We talked about the connection that they shared, the unity that the first century church enjoyed. We talked about how the way they were relationally connected to one another, that they were, um, they were connected in friendship, they were connected in service together, they were connected in generosity together. And in that way, the, the burden of ministry was light and manageable for everyone. And that's kind of the picture that we're going to go after this summer. Now, what we're doing today is shifting this idea of connection into our family, trying to look at what it looks like to connect within our family, to connect our families with other families as well. And, and this idea of family, we want to make sure we touch on how God has designed it, the gift that he has given us within it. But it is crazy to think about when we start life as humans, we start so helpless, do we not? I don't know if you ever watched Discovery Channel, but there are some animals out in the wild that when they give birth, it's like, you know, the, 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 the baby falls to the ground and like dusts itself off and then goes and, you know, kills a hippo and eats it. Like it just, it, it's amazing how quickly like some animals are just ready to go. Humans, not at all. Like we, we are helpless when we enter this world. We, we need care. We need nourishment. We need love. We need affection. All these things. And God has designed the vehicle for that to be family. And it's within the context of family that not only are we nourished, receive that care and that growth and that love, but as adults that are feeding into family, we recognize this is actually a vehicle that God has given us to help us become more like him. 
Because as we lean in as parents, as we develop family members as adults, and, and we, we lean in, we invest in unconditional love, we invest in self-sacrifice, we invest in nourishment, we invest in relational connection, all these things are things that God is doing with us. And it's beautiful. Now, when you start to open up the pages of Scripture and you look at the different examples of family dynamic within the Bible, you realize right away there are some great examples in the negative. Adam and Eve, first family. Eve receives two bouncing baby boys, Cain and Abel. You could just imagine, Cain, why can't you be like your brother? Cain, how come you don't give the same sacrifice your brother gives? Cain says, I'm killing him. One family, one murder. This is not a good start to a book on family dynamics, right? We're going to talk about the life of David this summer. We're going to go through episodes of his life all together as a church family. And one of the things that you'll see is that we're going to, what we're going to draw out is that David is a man after God's own heart. This is true. This is who he is. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. However, when you peek under the hood, even just a sneak peek at David's family, you see how broken and how messy it is. There are more plot twists with David's family than an episode of The Sopranos. Like, it's, it's ugly there. And, and it brings us to this first fill-in, if you're filling in the blanks. It's that every family is crazy, messy, and less than perfect. Now, we start here with the negative because for some of you, you might be a bit embarrassed about your family of origin you're not happy about the less than auspicious start you were given in life. And my wife Jody and I, we, we love our crazy extended family, but, but I want to just be honest with you, a little vulnerable this morning and tell you that, that we are not thrilled about some of the choices that they choose to live. And I'll just give you one story, no names at all, but one true story from extended family. Uh, one is a cousin, female cousin. She starts going out with a guy, not a great guy. And they get pregnant. And because he's not a great guy, they break up. So the guy starts going out with this cousin's sister and gets her pregnant. Two babies, one baby daddy, not a good guy. He goes to jail for, I think, drug dealing. Again, just winner here. And, uh, and while he's in jail, the mom of these two sisters starts visiting him in jail <laughs> you guys, I love you. I love you. <laughs> Taking him care, packages, all this stuff. She falls for him. They get married. <laughs> she becomes simultaneously a jail bride and the stepmother of her grandchildren. Let's close in prayer. <laughs> I share this, so it doesn't matter where you are, right? It doesn't matter what kind of family of origin you come from. I've just leveled the playing field. You have to feel better about yourself today. Okay, this is just not an episode of Jerry Springer, just a, you know, extended family of me right here. So, and I say this because God graciously and lovingly invites us 
to set our sights a little higher. That there's, this, there's actually this, this beautiful redemptive thing that God does that he meets us in this broken, messy, you know, the world where, where everything is less than perfect. Dysfunction is the norm, and yet he allows us, right, to live a greater, higher, truer, more noble reality within our family structure. And that's what we're going to go after. If you're filling in the blanks, healthy family is part of God's good design for us. So if we, can, if we can embrace health within ourselves, within our relationships as a family, it, it's a part of God's good design. And there's so much redemptive value there. There's so much light and life. There's so much nourishment and hope and joy as we embrace healthy family. In Luke chapter 10, we're going to look at one episode where family and Jesus intersect. And so if you have your Bibles, you're welcome to open them. Luke chapter 10, verse 38. It'll be on the screen. It's on your notes as well. And this is a story of Jesus being in the home of, of some siblings, okay? This is Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Jesus is with them. Let's just read the passage. It says, as Jesus and his disciples continued on their way to Jerusalem, they came to a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. Her sister Mary sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he taught. But Martha was distracted by the big dinner she was preparing. She came to Jesus and said, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits here while I do all the work? Tell her to come and help me. But the Lord said to her, my dear Martha, you are worried and upset over all these details. There's only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it, and it will not be taken away from her. All right, so let's delve into this passage for a moment. You've got this incredible uh, kind of a friendship home of Jesus and his disciples. You might be familiar with other episodes in the Gospels where Martha and Mary and Lazarus are all together. They're siblings. They live in the town of Bethany. And Jesus and his disciples had become friends with them on their trips to Jerusalem from Galilee and then to Galilee from Jerusalem. They would have passed through Bethany and spent some time there. So, so that's kind of the context. The Bible's really interesting, and it says that uh, Martha welcomed them into her home. So the indication is this home, this, this family property, it's, it's actually in Martha's name. She's the owner. And that's interesting, is especially when it comes to this time frame. Uh, you know, whenever you're reading about um, th this idea of how property was passed from generation to generation in antiquity, very rarely would the, the, um, the female... Uh, you know, be, be re the recipient of an inheritance. It would most often go to a, a male child, not the female child. And so that's kind of interesting. And maybe it wasn't inherited. Maybe she had earned the money and purchased the property, and so it was her home by her own industry. Either way that story goes, it's an impressive story. Because it just means that there were some things about Martha that, were, that stood out. There were some things about Martha that were extraordinary. She was probably the oldest child, she was probably responsible, a little bit type A. She knew how to get things done. This was her home. And then Lazarus and Mary, the siblings, they stayed with her in her home. And you could imagine that Martha had some expectations about that, that they would be expected to help out. They would be expected to chip in. You know, if there, were, if there was hosting duties that needed to be done, they would help host. If there were cooking duties or preparation duties, anything, you could imagine that Martha had some expectations along these lines. And again, these would be fairly normal. 
I asked this question at the first service. I was kind of impressed. How many of you, just by show of hands, how many of you have siblings, brothers or sisters? Anybody biological? So yeah, so almost, uh, yeah, the, the, the room's filled. So if you had siblings, it's quite probable that you had an experience with your brother or sister growing up in your household when it came to household chores that you had a brother or sister who was just a little lazy when it came to doing the chores. Can I get an amen? amen? Now, if that's not your experience and you think, no, you know, my brother or sister, they actually, they always were on it. You know, they were doing everything. The reason why you have that is because you were the lazy one in your family. <laughs> it's just how it goes. Now, growing up in my home, I, I, had, I have a younger brother, younger sister, and my brother's three years younger than me, my sister's seven years younger, so often when chores were assigned in our home, my parents would assign my brother and I to do the same chores, and this killed me because he was the worst, okay? It doesn't matter what the chore was, cleaning out the garage or picking weeds or anything, like he was a total faker. He just was a faker. And the worst chore we ever got assigned, it was the least favorite chore in our house, probably your house too, it was picking up the dog poop in the backyard. Because we had a golden retriever the size of a small pony. And our backyard looked like we grazed cattle back there, just huge landmines everywhere. So we would be assigned this task together. And so I'd go out there and I'd have my trash bag and I'd use a shovel and I'd be like, you know, one pile, two piles, three piles. I'd look over and my brother would be like on the patio going, oh, I feel nauseous. I can't do this. It's making me sick. You're not sick. You know, get out there. Come on, get busy. I'd scoop four piles, five piles, six piles. I'd look over. He's like fake dry heaving. I can't do it. You can do it. Get out there. You know, I like seven pile, eight pile. I look over. I'm like, Mark, get out there and do so. I'm almost done with the whole backyard. And he'd be like, you know what you are, bro? You're doing a great job. Why don't you finish up? No wonder I had high blood pressure as a kid. And by the way, this is absolutely true. If my brother's watching online, he's you know, down in Southern California right now, but if he's watching this, he's snickering to himself right now going, yep, that was me. I totally did that. So I can understand how Martha feels frustrated right here. That's the whole point. I, I get it. I, I, I understand what that tension is within siblings and and so she is frustrated, and she has this, uh, in her mind, she's got this legitimate beef with her sister Mary that is not helping out with all of these preparations. And, and here's what you need to know if you're filling in the blanks, that family often exposes or reveals our values or ourselves, right? It reveals who we are. It, it, it shows up what we value, within the family context. And that's either uh, because we value the same things within our family or it's because now we have conflict of values within our family, but family dynamic often reveals or exposes our values and ourself. Martha, it says, was distracted by the big dinner she was preparing. Her, her mind was in all of the details and all the preparations and all of the tasks that needed to be done and the order in which all those tasks needed to be done. And, and who assigned Martha this job in the first place? Martha Stewart. No, it was Martha. 
right? It was Martha herself. She was the one who was putting all of these burdens, these expectations on herself, and, and therefore that was where her mind was going, complete distraction. She came to Jesus and said, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair? So right away her value said is what's fair versus what's unfair. It would be fair if Mary helped me. It's unfair that she doesn't help me. And then she says, my sister's just sitting there while I do all the work. What's the value? Work. The work is the value. Getting the thing done is the value. Putting this thing on the table, making it perfect for my guests, that's the value. This work is the value. And so you can kind of see in, in your own family context, you can see where this comes up. It's your value, and it'll either butt heads with those in your family, or it'll be the same. But, it, but it's family where we see these things, because family exposes all these things. Now, I do want to give you just a bit of an aside. It's, it's probably very helpful for us to pause for just a moment before we ask Jesus to weigh in on a conclusion we've already come to. So you notice Martha had already come to a conclusion about Mary being unfair, being lazy, just sitting around while she was doing all the work. And so she comes to Jesus, Lord, tell her to help me. Jesus, tell her that this is unfair. You know it's unfair, right, Jesus? Would you just get her to help me? She should have waited just a moment to think about that. And so I just want to say this as an aside. When you, when you have a, a conclusion you've come to, and then you ask Jesus to weigh in on it, just be humble when he responds differently than you expect him to. Right? Like, Jesus, come on. I can do whatever I want to with my money. It's my money, isn't it, Jesus? Just be humble for his response. Jesus, I don't really have to care for those people, right? Not those people, Jesus. You don't want me to care for them, do you? Just be humble when you hear his response. Jesus, those people who believe politically totally different than I believe, they're wrong, aren't they, Jesus? They're just completely wrong. Just be humble when he responds differently than you expect him to. <laughs> this is hard, right? <laughs> this one's hard. This is a hard truth right here. But you know, Jesus, he is always for you, but he's not always on your side. He's always for you. He's always for your heart. He's always for your flourishing. He's always for your best. He is totally for you. That doesn't mean he always agrees with you. That doesn't mean you're always right in the things that you've concluded. And so I can imagine as Jesus answers Martha, he does it with gentleness. He does it with kindness. I can imagine Jesus so caring for Martha in this moment. But he completely contradicts her, doesn't he? He gives her an answer she was not at all prepared to hear. The Lord said to her, my dear Martha, in some of your translations, it's just Martha, Martha. You can, just, you can hear his tenderness. You are worried and upset over all these details. There's only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it, and it will not be taken away from her. He says, friend, Mary's not just being lazy. Mary's not just shirking responsibility. Mary is sitting at my feet, listening to everything I'm saying. Mary's investing in this relationship. And by the way, this is the one thing that's worth being concerned about, the relationship that we have with Jesus. 
This is the one thing that matters more than anything else because it impacts all of life and eternity. And Mary has found this, and so she's sitting at the feet of Jesus, and she's listening to the words of Jesus, and she's growing in her relationship with Jesus, and there's a vibrancy, and there's an intimacy, and and that's what we are invited into, friends. That is that beautiful picture that we get a chance to see. And Jesus says, and it's so good what Mary has chosen. I'm not going to take this away from her. The other things, they matter less than what has been discovered here with Mary in this relationship. And that's the invitation that he is inviting you and I to as well. This learning, this growing, this being with Jesus, this is the highest value. It's the source of all our life and vitality. It's how we bear fruit of the Spirit. It's how we develop into the character of Christ. It's how all spiritual victories are possible. In fact, Jesus himself says this in John 15.4. He says, remain in me, and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it's severed from the vine. You cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. And so what had Mary chosen? She had chosen no distractions. She had chosen to remain, just to be face-to-face with her Savior, listening in rapt attention with the lover of her soul. Mary had discovered what was most important, and Jesus would not take that away. And that's the invitation that he wants to extend to you and to me. And by the way, in that context of of the story, that's the invitation that he was extending to Martha, now, I know some of you, you're a little bit like me, and you're like, oh, yeah, but, but then if Martha's sitting at the feet of Jesus, too, what about the dinner? When are they going to eat? Like, like how, you know, that's important, and I'm, you know, I'm already kind of hungry, so when is that going to happen? And here, here, here's just, and I don't know, you know, I'm not speaking on behalf of Jesus, but the truth is, Jesus knew how to feed 5,000 with just a few loaves of bread and some fish. He knew how to turn water into wine. I am certain that Jesus could snap his fingers and make a nice lamb kebab right away, you know, <laughs> take care of the needs of the evening. Like, I, and I would just tell you this, that I've been in ministry for 26 years, and one of the truths that I have seen is that when Jesus is the focus, the essential stuff gets done. That when Jesus is the first priority, the stuff that needs to get done does get done. And so for the discussion today, the takeaway might be this. Time with Jesus is the strongest way you can build your family. So often we think it's the opposite. We think in order to build my family, in order to serve my family, in order to invest in my family, provide for my family, I've got to sacrifice time with Jesus. But this shows us the opposite, that actually time with Jesus might be the very best way to build your family, to make it strong. Why? Because this is the value that impacts all of life and all of eternity. So just make it personal for a moment. In in your family dynamic, are you the one who is more interested in the details or are you more interested in the relationships? In your family dynamic, are are you the one who is more interested in concocting a beautiful event and concocting a beautiful evening and some kind of a beautiful family episode where all of the details happen exactly perfectly? Are you more interested in the connections so that those provide opportunity to become spiritual encounters within your family context? Right? So just kind of challenge yourself in this. Time with Jesus is the strongest way that you can build your family. Next fill-in. Family frames and guides our pathway forward. It frames and guides our pathway forward. 
Family relationships are the soil in which our lives are nourished, and it enriches us, it grows us. This is true, and many studies have shown this, that even in the teens and through the 20s, the relationship with parents continues to be the highest and truest influence in a young person's life, for better or for worse, right? For good or for bad. That relationship is so incredibly important. And again, this is, friend, I want you to know there's freedom. This does not mean that parents have to control their kids. They can't control their kids. And this also doesn't mean that uh, good parents don't, uh, from time to time, struggle with the poor choices their children's make. Uh, their children's make. That is an additional lie and a pressure we put on ourselves. But it does mean this. It does mean that parents have a charge to build loving, consistent, Christ-centered family structures. Right? We, we have a charge from God to raise our children well in the grace and truth of Jesus. And Scripture says this, Proverbs 22, 6, Start children off on the way they should go, and even when they're old, they will not turn from it. Right? Start children off on the way they should go. So there's this, this challenge, right, as we build our families to recognize that we're in the launching business. We're in the propelling forward business. We're to start children off on the, on the right path, on a good path, a noble path, a path of character, a path that knows and honors Jesus. And then when they're old, they will not depart, the Bible says. When they're old, they won't turn from it. For some kids, they have to go away for a while, but they'll come back to the true path that we have set for them, the example and the model that we have shown them, right? Because family frames and guides the pathway forward. And again, the most important thing that we're going to focus on is connection and relationship. Why? Because that's what Jesus has focused on with us. Friends, Jesus embraced an incredible amount of sacrifice so that we could have a relationship with our Heavenly Father. Right? Jesus left heaven. Jesus lived in poverty. Jesus suffered. He was crucified. He died. Jesus literally went through hell so that we could have a restored, a right relationship with our Heavenly Father. We value relationship. Why? Because Jesus valued it above all. Because Jesus is the one who has pursued us. Jesus is the one who has unconditionally and relentlessly come after us and called us so that he could cleanse us and make us right with our Heavenly Father. And, and that kind of pursuit and that kind of commitment to connection and relationship, that's how we model our own parenting, our own family building. And so as parents, we follow, follow his model. I would say just, this is from experience, it's also from reading, knowledge, talking with many of you. Sometimes parenting, especially parenting teenagers, is a bit of a battle. And so one of the things that my wife Jody and I constantly talk about in terms of our parenting is we want to make sure that we don't overemphasize the individual battles at the risk of losing the, the entire war. Right? We want to keep the big picture the big picture. What is the big picture? What's the big goal? It's to have a relationship of love with our children, to be in connection with them, to be in relationship with them for the whole rest of our lives. That's the war. Now, the battles, right, we want to make sure that we're wise and we're invested and we're coaching and guiding and we're engaged in all the battles along the way, but we don't have to win every battle. In fact, I just want to say this really clearly. Sometimes there are parenting strategies that are involved in winning every battle, and I would say the easiest way to lose the war is to win every battle. 
Because if you lean in as parents with, with the kind of strength and the kind of domination that you have, and you can win every battle. Parents, I want to just tell you, maybe you don't feel like you can win battles. You, you, you can win battles. You've got everything going for you. You've got the power. You've got the voice. You've got the resources. You can cut off cash flow. You can take away friends. You can take away phone. <gasps> That's like oxygen. There are all kinds of tools you have to win battles. You can win every battle, but friends, I want to caution you. Because if you win every battle, you might forfeit the war. Right? If you make it so domineering where you have to win every battle, your, your child is thinking to themselves, the soonest I can get away, the fastest I can run away. I don't want to be in this, where's the value in relationship? Am I honored? Am I loved? Am I cherished? Right? That's, that's the war. That's what we're fighting for. So again, the challenge here is that we recognize that family frames and guides our pathway. The next fill-in, family isn't a single formula. There is no one-size-fits-all for families. Families come in all different sizes, shapes, uh, makeups. All children are different. Every child is unique. I don't know how many testimonies I know and, and am one of where you parent one child one way and it works perfectly. You parent the next child in the same way and it's a total train wreck. So the idea is there's no one formula fits all. I just say this because it seems like every decade there is a fad formula that we all glom onto. Right? Every decade, there's a new book out. There's a new strategy to try. And again, there's good things in all these strategies. But, but we cannot think that every family is cookie cutter or looks the same or works the same. Now, there are some good generalities. The scripture's filled with them. God absolutely wants us to prize one another <clears throat> as spouses, right? That we honor uh, marriage. We prize the spouse that he's given us. That we don't exasperate our children, that we love them, that we honor them, we cherish them. And specifically, that we view our families as a gift. Look at this next verse, Psalm 127. It says, children are a gift from the Lord. They are a reward from him. Now, parenting teenagers, there's sometimes when I'm like, God, I don't really want this gift. Uh, I'll, re I'll return this. I'll take a gift card. Give me a gift card. And... <laughs> No, no, children are a gift, right? They are a reward from God. I, I, here's the deal. The next time you're frustrated with a kiddo, just say to yourself, you are a gift from God, <laughs> right? Just own it. Like, okay, Lord, they're a reward from him. Children born to young men are like arrows in a warrior's hand. How joyful is the man whose quiver is full of them. Now, again, to use the analogy, parenting is a lot. This analogy is beautiful about what parenting is for, that we, we are to launch our children straight and true, that we, we are to release our children into the future, and our goal as parents is to aim them well and then let them fly into the future that God is calling them into. Right, so it's a, it's a beautiful analogy of what parenting is like. And let me speak to children for a moment. And all of us, by the way, I don't know if you have kids, but all of us are kids. So let me speak to all of us kids for a moment. The Bible calls us to honor our father and mother. And this is, a, this is the command in the Old Testament that comes with a promise. We're to honor our father and mother, and it will go well for us. 
that we will live long in the land. It will be a rich experience of life as we honor our father and mother. It's a beautiful command with a promise. Now, the Bible also speaks of it in the negative. In other words, what happens when we don't honor our father and mother? The scripture says this in Proverbs 20, 20. If you insult your father and mother, your light will be snuffed out in total darkness. It's a good teaching moment for my own teenagers, right? And I don't really know exactly what it means, just so you know. I've done a little research, and uh, light snuffed out in total darkness. All I know is it's never been used as an analogy for good things happening in your life. And so this challenge, right, as, as children, that, that we're to honor our parents. So right now where you are, I want you to think about your parents, your folks. How are you doing on this, honoring your father and mother? Right? And I know, even as, as parents age, right, the, the, the relationship gets even more complex, and there are all kinds of dynamics at play. Are we honoring our folks? Are we respecting them? Are we valuing them? I want you to write down in the margins somewhere a, a tool that has helped me so much over the course of my adult life, and it's this, the assumption of good intent. The assumption of good intent. And what this means as I apply it to how my parents parented me is I assume that they were doing the very best they knew how to do. For whatever tools that they had at their disposal, whatever model that they had that was given to them, they were doing the very best parenting job they knew how to do when they were raising me. That's the assumption of good intent. Now, I recognize this has limitations. It's not true of all parents. And it's uh, never always true of any parents. So I, I get that. But this tool has helped me, uh, it honestly has opened up whole new vistas of relationship and connection with my own mom and dad. And so I would offer this to you, this assumption of good intent. And let me just make it reflexively. I pray that my children apply that same lens when they look at my parenting over them. Right? Jody and I, we are not perfect parents, but we love our kids, and we want to raise them well. We want them to be good humans. We want them to know and love Jesus. So we are trying to raise them in a great way, a way that brings life and flourishing and vitality to them. So again, this assumption of good intent makes good things happen. This brings me to uh, make this, wrap this up right now. Some summer connection challenge for all of us, families of all types, kids of all ages. Just a quick couple of challenges. The first, I want to challenge you to a couple of screen-free days this summer with your family members. Screen-free days. And again, if you're the parents, this is uh, maybe kind of easy. You just grab a basket. Everybody puts their cell phones in, and you go. You spend, you know, whatever afternoon together. You have the barbecue together, whatever the event is together. That's beautiful. If you're 20-something, if you're 30-something, and you're hanging out with your parents, do this as well. Put, have everyone put their cell phone in the middle of the table, right? And nobody touches their cell phone during the course of our meal together. When I think about my whole family and I think about who the biggest culprit is, the one who's most addicted to responding immediately to their cell phone buzz, it's my mom. It's my mom. I can't tell you how many times I'm like halfway through like a, a, a juicy story. I'm, I'm working on a punchline. I'm like two seconds away from it. And my mom would be like, it's like mom, you are not such a, a Facebooker. Like, people aren't just dying to watch that cat video right now. Like, 
put it down. Like, let's talk. So the challenge, right, is that, that what we do is we put our phones away. Phones, by the way, and, and all screens in general, they, they have a, it's a video and audio cave. It isolates you. So you put it away, and now you're in a common reality. And so now there's actually, a, a, it's a space to connect with the person. We're, we're living in this environment together. We get to connect and interact in, in a real-time way, and that's the value. And, and our prayer is this wouldn't be just a one-time thing or a two-time thing, but it would actually become a part of the life pattern that you engage your family with. So this idea of screen-free days. The next fill-in is to plan a summer date with a family member. Summer date with a family member, and there are many ways to do this. You could do this with all your family members and host a block party or go to the party at the park with OCC, or you could just do it with one or two members of your family. You know, maybe this is where you end up taking your dad out to sushi, you take your mom out to do her nails. Uh, if you have kiddos, maybe it's just focused on one kid at a time, and you do kind of a couple of different dates with your kids. Uh, I got one of my kiddos who loves classic cars, so I, I took him up to a classic car showroom in Mount Vernon, and that was a, a fun outing that we did together. A couple of ways that you might want to write down how to do this when it comes to these things. Number one is you've got to take initiative when it comes to setting a date with a family member. So you've got to be proactive. You've got to plan it. You've got to calendar it. The second thing is you need to invest yourself into their world a bit. So you kind of look at what it is that they're interested in, where they want to connect, and then you kind of dive in and try to meet them there. For example, my youngest son, Doozy, if I want to connect with him, superheroes is the ticket, right? So whatever superhero movie's out, they're literally interchangeable. They're all the same. Does not matter. Uh, just connecting with him there and then, you know, light conversation about what it would take for him to become that superhero. That's about it, Right? For my daughter, who's older, and she's kind of at the end of her high school experience, for her, it's that thoughtful conversation. So it's whatever we can do, whatever context we can get in, we're just thoughtful, engaged conversation about stuff in the world, about stuff she's dealing with in her world. Um, that's what it takes to connect with her. Or, so it's not just invest in their life, maybe it's you try to draw them into your life. So this is where, you know, you've got a project happening, so you've got to go to Home Depot, you've got to make something happen, so you bring your kids along, and you do that thing together. Right now, I feel really fortunate. Both my boys like working out with me, so we built a little home gym, and we're putting together little workouts where we can all do that together. But again, it's one of those things. It takes intentionality and calendaring. It takes you jumping into their world, or it takes you pulling them into your world. And the last fill-in is I think the most exciting for this summer challenge, and that is to share your testimony within your family. Share your testimony within your family. And this is something, I just wanna be honest, I'm so excited about doing this. I already kinda have in my mind how it's gonna work. I'm gonna do a, a nice long family kind of a barbecue. And over the course of sitting out at the, our, our back deck picnic table, just to have Jody and I share the story of how we came to trust Jesus with our whole life how we came to follow him and, and, and pursue him. And, and then we want to give space for our kids to ask us questions about that, about what our journey was like, or questions about what our, our high school years were like, our college years were like, et cetera. And, and the idea of us being willing to show our kids that we're not perfect, that, that we have made mistakes along the way. 
And that even in our mistakes, that, that the grace of Jesus and the redemption of Jesus has met us along the way. And I said this at the last service, and I'll just say for you too. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't use the discernment of the Holy Spirit in sharing all of the mistakes that you've made, right? You don't have to share, you know, every time you made a bad choice or, um, you, you know, if, if it's all just like a list of, you know, 400 things that you've done wrong, you know, by the, by the 240th one, they're like, oh my gosh, you know, I had no idea. And you're just like, well, trust me, it gets worse and you keep going, you know. <laughs> Like, I, I definitely use the discernment of the Holy Spirit. If I could just give you um, one piece of advice on your testimony, and this is for all the time, not just with your family. Jesus needs to be the hero. If Jesus isn't the hero, I, I don't think you should share. If it's all about you glorifying how bad you were or how many poor choices you made, then, then that's actually not a testimony. That's just, you're just jumping into a bad pit, Right? And, and, and so Jesus is the hero because he's the one who met you there. And he's the one who, who was kind to you and who was gentle with you and who was gracious, who covered you and cleansed you, who put you on your feet, who gave you now purpose and hope and a new life and trajectory. So Jesus is the one who gets the glory. Can I get an amen? Amen. 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 Jesus right. is at the center. Okay. I'm going to be quiet. Let's, let's bow our heads and let's close our eyes. And I want to ask... You as, you, as you pray right now, would you just think of your family? I want you to think about your parents, your siblings. I want you to think about your children, any extended family that you want to bring before the Lord right now. And Jesus, we do want to tell you thank you for our family. We recognize that the family that you've given us is a gift from you. We don't pretend that our families are perfect, Jesus. In fact, we recognize the imperfections and the dysfunctions, and so in the midst of that, we invite you to come. We invite your Holy Spirit to come into the midst of our homes, to the midst of our households, how we parent, how we're children with our parents. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would move in such a way that you receive glory and honor that you are the one who creates a more healthy family dynamic. And more than anything else, Lord, we pray for our relationships, that they would flourish. We pray for our family to not only be family members, but that you would develop the friendship within our families. We celebrate that, Lord. We know that all of these connections can be made for your glory. And so we ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.